into the preaching of God's Word, which is found in Ezra chapter 10. We've read the whole of the chapter, which will serve for our attention this afternoon. But to focus our thoughts for but a moment, consider but a few selected passages which will uh, cause us to uh, glean the vital points. And so you'll notice, for instance, verses 2 and following, And Shechaniah the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord, of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. And notice again in verse 10, Ezra the priest stood up, this is with the assembled people together, and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do his pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. And all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so we do. And you'll notice further there at verse 16. Children of the captivity, when Ezra the priest with certain chief of the fathers after the house of their fathers and all of them by their names were separated and sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. And among the sons of the priests there were found that had taken strange wives, namely of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his brethren Maasiah, and Eleazar, and Jerob, and Gedaliah. And they gave their hands that they would put away their wives. And being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their trespass. And then the rest of those names, which likewise had been found guilty of this sin, and were brought to repent. We have seen throughout this book the Lord reforming His people. He, of course, did so initially by, as it were, clearing the table, by sending them from Jerusalem, the scene of such debauchery and wickedness in the way of profaning God's worship, as well as in morality or immorality between man and man in that city, and so sent them in exile. And after a period of appointed years, did raise up men, according to his prophecy, that would then bring back various waves to return to Jerusalem. We remember the temple had been desecrated. It had been uh, destroyed. And so among the first works was the rebuilding of the temple and then ultimately the wall as would be done under Nehemiah and so on. So these various waves were taking place of the Lord bringing his people back. And this wasn't for some mere national or civil activity, but the temple being central to the proclamation of God's glory, it was to the reestablishing of his praise and worship and his people in their knowledge of the gospel and of the way of holiness. And yet we found so quickly that the people had turned aside. And this most recent case was identified in chapter 9 when Ezra sees all of this, report is given to him that, as it is in verse 1, the people of Israel, the priests and the Levites, chapter 9, verse 1, have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. Notice, doing according to their abominations. And it mentions explicitly various nations and peoples who were, by the way, strictly forbidden such relationship. Verse 2 of chapter 9, they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves. The hand of the princes and rulers hath been cheated in this trespass. This stuns Ezra. It causes him to lose his breath. He falls down, he rips his clothing, he plucks out his hair and his beard, what an expression of true, sincere torment of conviction, shame, and indeed of humiliation, such that 
in one degree or another, everyone who has ever been used of God for great things has faced. You see it later in Nehemiah. You see it before in Josiah. You see it in David's day. You see it in the Apostles' day. Think of how the Apostle Paul, in a quick sort of staccato fashion, goes through his ministry and speaks of the stonings and the beatings and the shipwrecks. And beside all of this, what's more, the care, the burden of all of the churches rests upon me. It is a foolish man who says, well, give me office in the church because I can do it. What we see rather is how necessary it is to be called unto office that the Lord would supply such strength as is required. But what we see more particular in this case is that the work of Reformation is never done. It never gets to a point in this world where it can be said the Reformation is over. Instead, there can be seasons and epochs where great things are established, but even in our own denomination's heritage and history, we can see it, for instance, in Scotland. You have the initial beginnings of the Reformation in the 1550s, formally established by confession in 1560, and yet in many ways not fully established until 1592, and the Charter of Presbytery is granted, and worship is going forth, and yet anyone who is aware with the history of the Church of Scotland will realize that from that day until 1638, there is massive upheaval taking place, and there's corruptions entering in, and the godly are laboring again and again until finally 1638 comes, and then the Westminster Assembly and further reform, and yet infightings and trials and difficulties and troubles seek to ravage the church and cast her down. There are turncoats who turn from their vowed adherence to the Scriptures and the Reformation and so on, who become the very enemies and leaders of the killing times. These things take place. And so, brethren, we ought never to think that the season of Reformation is an easy season, whether for the people who, by God's grace, are leading that, or for the people who, by God's grace, are desiring it. When we pray for things like Reformation, we should, in one way, realize that we're praying for difficulties. Now, it's not that we're literally praying, Lord, make it difficult for us. But when Reformation is taking place, whether at a very individual level, or in a family, or congregation, or more uh, widespread level, we realize that when the Lord is reforming things, it's like setting a broken bone. It's not pleasant in and of itself, but the benefit of it is truly acknowledged. Well, Ezra had been at work already, and now he hears this. And you'll notice in our text Though it's a large passage, it breaks up into a number of points that we can quickly go through. You see in verses 1 through 5, the scene of sorrow is before us, and Ezra, not only on himself, but with many people, men, women, and children, are humbling themselves in light of such sin. And it's in such a context that Shechaniah arises and seemingly confirms what Ezra has either stated or implied is the remedy. And so he acknowledged, we've trespassed, here's the remedy, let us make covenant with our God to put away all of these wives and such as are born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord and those that tremble at the commandment of our God, let it be done according to the law. And so here's the scandal, and Shechaniah is saying, in accordance to what Ezra seemingly has also stated, that there is a remedy provided, there is a way to remove the scandal. Notice in verses 6 through 8, Ezra then proclaims throughout those who have returned to gather to Jerusalem in three days. And if they f- don't do so, it's by the power of the civil magistrate as well that their possessions should be forfeited and they turned out of Israel. So it's a mandate to come by this leader of God's people and a justly established Authority Verses 9-14 through 14 have the people having assembled who likewise acknowledge their great sin. Notice the three days pass. Ezra stands up. He says, perhaps among other things, but here recorded, ye have transgressed. And notice verse 11, make confession. 
And what do the congregation say? Well, Ezra, you know, lighten up. No, the congregation answered. So all of those who have gathered said with a loud voice, as thou hast said, so must we do. And so you have another appearance of God's grace at work. God's grace bringing Ezra along. God's grace through Shechaniah strengthening Ezra. God's grace assembling the people. God's grace to strengthen Ezra to reprove sin. God's grace to cause the people to acknowledge sin. All of this is God's work. And yet, in this section, you notice there are complications. There are tremendous a number of people who have done this. Verse 13, moreover, it's the rainy season, and so we can't just stand around and work through this. And moreover, as would it be implied at the very least, there are complicating aspects to all of this that need to be worked through in an orderly fashion. And so the people raise this, and Ezra with other leaders, verses 15 through 17, set up a three-month-long examination of all concerned in this sin. And so there are leaders who are going, as it were, tribe by tribe, people by people, with the elders of their cities gathered together, hearing the cases, working through the details, and executing righteousness in their midst. And then finally, the most lengthy portion from verse 18 through the end is the list of those who have been found guilty of so having transgressed God's covenant and who were thus led to put away their wives as was recommended. Now, brethren, there's much in this passage, and we've been quick to highlight the main aspects of the text But central to all is the remedy that's before us. And it's important before we go further to notice this particular remedy both proposed and executed. It's the first, you notice the remedy is proposed in verse 3, that they make a covenant with our God and put away these wives and children. Notice this is speaking of what is mentioned in chapter 9, who were people of God, to do these abominations. So it's important for us to notice a couple of things with references. There are questions that we can't answer. There are questions as you drill down deeply, you're left with this reality of, I don't know the answer to those questions. But there are some questions we can answer. Notice the marriage, first off, with these nations was strictly forbidden. We saw this last year. If you have desire to go further, you can see this in Exodus 34, in Deuteronomy 7, In Joshua 23, there's no question that this was a very explicit sin. And in fact, it was being realized so by the people because the report that's given in chapter 9, verse 1, is that instead of the people, priests, and Levites separating themselves as the holy people of God, they have united with these people and are now doing according to their abominations. And principally in this, uh, as a a means to it, was their taking of the daughters for themselves and for their sons. And so what was taking place was not just intermarriage, but intermarriage with active idolaters, which was thus leading God's people into idolatry. We note that it wasn't strictly the case (coughs) that Israel was never permitted to marry with someone who was of the lineage of a Moabite or whatever else. For instance, converts were made full citizens of Israel. So you see this in Exodus chapter 12, verses 48 through 49. Those who would be proselytes would be brought in. You see it as well in Ezra itself, chapter 6 and verse 21. It speaks of those, not only the children of Israel, which were come again out of captivity, but also all such as had separated themselves unto them from the filthiness of the heathen of the land. So in other words, the children of Israel are mentioned, plus those who have joined with the children of Israel. And so it's not some racial issue. It's not an issue, as some have said, you know, this is what justifies us saying that, well, if you're Caucasian, you should never marry this person or that person. All of that's nonsense. What's going on is a spiritual 
issue of allegiance to God. And so these people, the Moabites and so on, the descendants there, were active idolaters who were not forsaking their idolatry and were leading the people returned of God into idolatry. You'll remember Ruth, of course, a Moabitess, was one who was lawfully married to a Jew. And this because, as she said, uh, thy God shall be my God, and so forth. All of these things taking place. Divorce, moreover, we realize was permitted in a larger degree under the Old Testament, so long as Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 and following indicates it was done in an orderly process. This doesn't give every explanation for before us, but it does help us see the context with which Ezra, a scribe well-trained in the law of God, was working from. Ezra is not here standing as a renegade. He's not standing as some radical that's just going off on his own. He's one who is under the law of God and with these others is seeking to carry out the law of God. You notice that Shechaniah acknowledges that uh, the strange wives and the children should be put away. The only record of those put away is the strange wives. Now, it could be that children were included, but it's worth noting that what's in the text is that those who had taken strange wives put away their wives. And so it would seem that perhaps the children were given care and taken uh, under the covenant. And we ought to emphasize, because others have taken from this passage a false teaching, that if you find yourself married to a pagan, today you're free to divorce. But Paul actually explicitly sets that aside in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 12 and following, testifying that you husbands and you wives, if married to one who's not a believer, if they are pleased to dwell with you, you're to remain married. Now, there's a lot here by way of introduction because there's a lot here that has to be, at least as much as we're able to, to be understood in order to see the bigger picture of what's taking place. The scandal merely the marrying of foreigners. It was that in marrying them, they had married those who were actively opposing God and leading God's people into active defilement before the Lord. And that scandal is what's being reformed. And so, though there are many more questions each of us will have, we can at least content ourselves with seeing the essence of what's before us. And having done so, the chapter actually establishes very clear marks of biblical reformation, which is helpful for us. We speak of desiring reformation. We pray for reformation. We seek reformation. And we ought to know, of course, by now, that to be, quote, reformed is far more than the five points known as the doctrines of grace. To be reformed speaks of being reformed in doctrine, in worship, in government, in practice, in discipline, comprehensively reformed according to the Word of God. And that's what you see taking place here. God's people who had embraced public and wicked scandal are now being brought to be reformed in their practice according to the Word of God. That's the essence of what Shechaniah says. We are to make covenant with our God to put away these, (coughs) even according, as he says at the end of verse 3, to the law. So as we pray for reformation, as we seek reformation, let us consider several marks of reformation before us in this chapter. The first of which is this. Reformation shows itself by repentance. This is fundamental. It's helpful because in our day, there are all sorts of these appeals to what reforming is, and yet if you pay attention to what's not being said, what's not being said is that people need to repent. And so you have these notions in previous years not to uh, awaken uh, what we hope and pray would be a dead scandal, but with the whole revoice movement that took place a handful of years ago and unfortunately still has aspects going forward where people can so-called identify as Christian gays, 
and homosexuals and still identify as a Christian, the argument for reform, and even using the argument semper reformata that we're always to be reforming, is that this is how the church should grow. The church should grow to acknowledge that there are Christians, vital Christians, who are attracted to men as men and women as women. Brethren, that's not reform. That is taking massive steps back in the way of rebellion against God. Reformation shows itself by repentance according to God's Word. Notice in our text, it's informed by God's law. This is Shechaniah's undergirding argument. This needs to be done in the counsel of you, my Lord. What a high title he gives to Ezra. And who is Ezra? Ezra is, of course, as is indicated for us, one who prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. He was a scribe well trained. He was a student of the Word of God. And who else is with him? Those who tremble at the commandment of our God. And what is it to be done according to? To be done according to the law. Repentance is the acknowledgement that we have turned from God's law and we are coming back to God's law. This repentance will begin with conviction of sin. And you see that, of course, in Ezra himself, but also that initial assembly, verse 1 of chapter 10, where there is assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men, women, and children. They're all there, and what are they doing? They're weeping very sore. They're convinced and convicted of the reality of this sin. And in fact, perhaps what is most astounding to us today is when the very perpetrators are assembled together, they have no argument against what Ezra has said. And so you'll notice, Ezra says in verse 10, very directly, ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore make confession unto the Lord. And so on. Notice what is said, verse 12. All the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. There is conviction. There is the acknowledgement of their sin. If there's ever reformation that takes place, whether in an individual, or in a household, or in a congregation, or in a presbytery or denomination, or throughout the broader reaches of the church of Christ, it is according to God's Word, and it brings conviction that leads to confession and repentance. And notice, we saw it in verse 12, the people say, as thou hast said, so must we do. You see it as well in verse uh, 12, and later on it says, we are many that have transgressed in this thing. Do you know what's absent in the whole chapter? Is any peep of an excuse. There's no sort of statement of, yeah, well, Ezra, I get it, but you know, there weren't many women here. There weren't many suitable people that I could marry. And after all, I love this person. I delight in this person. And if you give it time, Ezra, it'll all work out in the end. Besides, Ezra, many people do this. Look how many people have done this. Why are you coming to us and causing these things? Those are the answers we get today, isn't it? You come and you identify sin, and what's the response? Well, you know, I don't think it's that big of a deal. You know, I, yeah, of course, I see there are some passages, but I rather like these things. And moreover, if it were so wrong, why would so many people, God's people, be doing it? Instead, what happens as evidence, both of repentance, which evidences then reformation and leads to it, is that they confess it. We have transgressed in this thing. So it is. This is something for us to consider who call ourselves reformed. Are we so reformed as to acknowledge our sins and to confess it? But notice, it's not just confession. It's confession that then leads to appropriate action. You see this in verse 12 when they say, As thou hast said, so must we do. And in verse 19, 
as indicative of the whole list as well, they gave their hands that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their trespass. Repentance is not just conviction, nor is it merely acknowledgement that a way is right, nor is it merely acknowledgement that this is the right remedy. Repentance is the evidence of a life transformed, cutting off the sin, putting it aside, and stepping back into the path of righteousness. You can think of it as the psalmist puts it in Psalm 119, I thought upon my ways and then turned my feet unto thy commandments. That's repentance. Paul says it in 1 Thessalonians, where he says you were worshiping idols, but you turned from idols to serve the true and living God and await for his Son from heaven. That's repentance. Everything else may, insofar as it goes, be appropriate. It's appropriate for a person to say, I feel bad about this. It's appropriate for a person to say, what I've done is wrong. It's appropriate for a person to confess their sin. And though those are ingredients necessary for repentance, they aren't repentance themselves. Repentance properly considered is the act of turning away from that sin and walking now in the path of obedience. Now you'll notice that at a grand scale, this is taking place among those who had returned unto Jerusalem. And so what we have here is a large-scale repentance, which is showing forth this large scale of being reformed. Children, think of it for a moment. Perhaps you played with Plato before, and you've made something, and unless you become so adept as to learn to put little things in the Plato to give it structure so that it holds its shape, so as soon as you make something of any sort of uh, a thin uh, type and you start to carry it to show someone what you made, what happens? It starts to droop starts to lose its shape. So what do you have to do? Well, you take this, which was curved in one way as an arch, perhaps, and you're bringing it to mom or dad or to a friend to say, look what I've made, and you look at it, and it's sunken down. Well, at that moment, you have to reshape it so that it holds its right shape. Well, that's what's taking place when God reforms our lives. He doesn't just say, well, it used to be something, or it should be different. He actually reshapes it to be formed according to the standards uh, of His Word. And that's what's taking place before us. What were God's people to be? A holy people in full allegiance to God. They were to be a people without allegiance to idolaters. And what's taking place? God is making that so. He's doing so not just by force, you see. He's doing it, yes, by the application and enforcement of authority, but by the cultivation of a willing heart in His people. As thou hast said, so must we do. They gave their hands that they would put away their wives. And being guilty, they offered a ram. So Reformation is shown by repentance being brought again unto the way of God. But secondly, you see another uh, mark of Reformation. (coughs) Reformation is brought about in an orderly manner. There's a massive difference between anarchist revolution and orderly reformation. The two may, to different people, seem to be the same thing. But they are essentially different in the eyes of God. Anarchist revolution is not the same as biblically informed reformation. And so what do you notice? Well, first, as we've already indicated, the reformation is not going along the lines of one charismatic individual leader's view. It's done first and foremost according to the Word of God. The Word of God is foremost. And then it's also done, and since we've emphasized that already, by a lawful authority. So it's not some renegade that's standing up and saying, this is what we're going to do, and getting 
people all riled up and say, let's put off the authority. Let's put off these things. Let's do all of this by our own strength. Rather, there's a lawful authority that is executing its office. And so you'll notice in verse 6, it's Ezra rose up before the house of God. And he comes, of course, makes proclamation. But who is it that gathers with him? Well, all of the people ultimately gather in verse 9. But notice in verse 14, the request of the people, which Ezra indeed enacts, let now our rulers of all the congregation stand and let all them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times and with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. What's going on? There's the establishing and ordering of the right course of dealing with these things in an orderly way. So it's not just a renegade shooting from the hip. It's not just blindly shooting into the dark. There is care and examination that is exercised. So notice in verse 16, at the beginning, the children of captivity did so, and Ezra the priest, with certain fathers, that's reference to elders in the house of their fathers, and all of them of their name, by their names, were separated and sat down in the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And so there is a set-apart group, an assembly, a court, that was established to examine the courses of individuals who had come through and deal with that according to the Scriptures, according to principles of justice, and so on. It's, of course, a New Testament statement that all things are to be done decently and in good order. And so it is in all of the activities of the church. They are to be prevailed upon by an orderly execution of biblical teachings and principles. Notice, moreover, as uh, uh, verse 16 indicates, it wasn't just overseen by a lawful authority, but it was executed with orderliness. And so it is that they examined the matter. And notice this takes three months. They don't just sit down and say, okay, we're going to give this a really rapid thing. It's pretty clear to us if you've done this, you're guilty, you're done, and we have this sort of mass execution of a a course. But rather, notice it speaks of in verse 16, they sat down as a court. By the way, you heard this morning the term session, which has to do with sitting. And it's a, a, a term that has to do with sitting in authority. And that's the notion here. What's going on? They're sitting down as those who bear authority. And they do so when? The first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. So three months pass. And they're taking this with due orderliness, due consideration, due hearing, due searching, and so forth. And people would come, and they'd hear the case, and they'd consider the difficulties and the circumstances, and they'd apply biblical standards to that, and they'd do that for every case that came through. What you have here is an orderly scene. There's not some individual standing up and saying, it's my fiat, I make this decree, and so it is. There is the establishing of the offices of the church of that day ruling according to the mind of God in accordance to principles of equity and justice before the people of God. This is instructive for us. Sometimes we think, you know, why is it that church discipline cases take so long? And in fairness, they do take a long time. But what you see in general is this principle. There's much to consider, even in cases that are very clear. This is wicked. It still needs to be investigated, understood, and worked through. Because sometimes there are circumstances that differ one case versus another case. So for instance, you can imagine this is not being said as from the text, but you can imagine someone who had married a convert from another, and their wife was a faithful woman in Israel. Well, maybe, perhaps someone says, well, I know him, he's married to one who is from, you know, 
the Moabites or whoever. And perhaps the elders of the city say, you need to come and go before the court of session. And they go and they say, listen, my wife was converted. She was brought into the covenant. Though she is, of course, a physical descendant of the Moabites, yet she stands now as a faithful member of the covenant of God. Well, you can see how in the face of things, perhaps in mass display, it would seem that maybe he should put away this wife. But on a closer inspection, there's clarity as to why this is not only a valid, but a lawful marriage that ought not to be dissolved according to this issue. The point is, even at face value when something is clear, if it's to be done in a reformed way, and we don't mean that reform versus Arminian, but in a way of reforming, it's to be done in an orderly fashion. Care needs to be taken to ensure that circumstances and uh, matters at hand are considered well. And so if reformation is to take place, here's the point, it's not something that takes place overnight. It's something that takes place with prayerful consideration and searching into matters and applying the Scriptures accordingly. And this, by the way, is over one matter of these unlawful marriages that had been contracted contrary to the Word of God. How much more, brethren, when we start to look and survey the church as it is today? We thought just briefly, as you heard last week, about the variety of Presbyterians there are. And just off the top of my head, I could give to you 15 different denominations that are Reformed or Presbyterian. Now, some of those are less distant than we might think, but some of those are quite distant from one another. And if we start to include Baptists and the variety of Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and so on, we start to get a picture that the Reformation that is required is massive. It's true, and we're right to say, God could enact Reformation in a second. But brethren, that's different than His ordinary, ordinary way, which is by bringing men to conviction, and by leading them according to His Word, by exercising His grace through the channels of lawful authority, and they executing their office with orderliness and care and attention to detail, That takes time. And so you can think, for instance, of the life of Martin Luther. And whatever his view of Reformation leaves uh, as far as something to be desired, we can certainly look and say the church that Luther entered was far changed to the better when Luther left this world. (coughs) The point is, Luther didn't just flip a switch one night And these reformations took place. There were controversies, debates, and then things that spun out of control. And he saw overreaction. He saw underreaction. He saw the radical revolt that he then saw that some of his loose talkings had led certain leanings in these radicals that had to be addressed and and, uh, dealt with. And a lifetime was spent addressing these things of reform. You see the same in John Calvin's life. You see the same in John Knox's life. And the same in Ezra's life. These things required careful attention and a diligence that was given by the grace of God. So brethren, when we think about desiring reformation, let us be sure that when we think of that and pray for that, We think in terms of what's taking place here before us. The orderly, the careful, the diligent pursuit of bringing the Word of God to bear upon the various issues facing God's people. And so one thing that we hope this is doing is it's expanding our sense of the need of God's grace. It's deepening our sense of how much we require that God would be gracious to provide this work. And what it also does is it takes from our hand the sense, whatever our office, whatever our desire, whatever our gifts, it takes from our hand the sense that I am sufficient to bring it to pass. It's showing us how desperately we need God to work. Well, thirdly and briefly, you see another mark 
in that where there is reformation, it is a reformation that is applied equitably to all. And so notice in this list, we don't need to go through all these names again, but you can see the indication. Notice who's being addressed. You have leaders in church and state being addressed. So for instance, it says in verse 18, (coughs) among the sons of the priests, they were found that had taken strange wives, namely of the sons of Jeshua and the son of Jozadak, and so on. And it's they that gave their hands. And then if you were to go through this list, you'll see verse 23, Levites. (coughs) You'll see verse 24, Singers. And then you'll see in verse 25, this list of Israel in general. Here's the point. Reformation doesn't isolate one stratus of people over against another. In other words, it doesn't say, well, this reform is just for the lowly people in the church. They're the ones who have to change, while we, the leaders of the church, will go untouched. We see this, of course, this hypocrisy that's felt, for instance, in the nation, when lawmakers will say, well, the citizens, they need to abide by these tax laws, they need to abide by this, but we, the lawmakers, are going to have certain privileges that cause us to evade those requirements. And everyone who's not a lawmaker sees the utter hypocrisy of such things and says, this is wrong. You're applying a standard to the common people that you say to yourself that you aren't under. It's unfair. It's not equitable. Well, biblical reformation addresses the whole of the people. This is something that our forefathers realized. Remember, of course, that when King James was in his reign, that it was uh, our dear Mr. Melville who approached King James and took him by the sleeve and said in Old Scots, you're God's silly vassal. That is, you're God's little servant. There are two kings in this kingdom. There is King Jesus, of whom you are but a servant and a subject and no king. You see what Melville's doing is he's reminding King James that though in civil things, as he goes on to say, we will owe you all allegiance as you are a king. And in our civil affairs, we will honor your word. Yet you don't have authority to stand as king over the church because there's one king, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. What's the point? The Reformation in Scotland was applying the word of Christ to king and uh, beggar alike to people in the church and people uh, in office in the church and people who were but members of the church. Reformation doesn't single out, as it were, one class of people while avoiding the other. It lays the whole of God's Word before all of the people and calls them unto attendance. In fact, the same can be said of revival. When revival comes... It comes, and it doesn't just revive, as it were, this little person or that little person. It revives the people. And so, in St. Giles, if I'm not mistaken, in uh, the late 1500s, there was this revival among the ministers who had come together for a day of humiliation over the sins of the ministry. And as they were there, they were weeping and confessing their sins. They knew the people's sins. But what focused their attention in that assembly was their own ministerial defects. Revival had come and it caused them to see their sins and they confessed their sins. And these two are twins. Where there's revival, there's reformation. What followed? They reformed the activity of the ministry and put in place these things that were required by God's Word. But notice... It's not as many cries for revolution of our day because it's not just the finger of the people pointing up to those who have authority saying, you need to change. That's, in many ways, the defect of our nation today. You have these sort of uh, quick-burning 
movements that take place, and you have common people saying it's all the leader's fault, from it's the police's fault, it's the president's fault, it's this fault. Frankly, it's the fault, uh, it's the defect of many politics today where we think if we can just get the right person, quote-unquote, into office, all the problems are going to be uh, addressed. The reality is the problem is the people, not just the common people, but the leaders as well. And you'll notice it's not just, well, you leaders get your life straight. It's all people who are contrary to the law of God are brought to confess and repent of this sin. Where there is reformation, there is an equal application of God's law to all who are under the law. Now here's the question, who is under God's law? King, priest, and every individual is under God's law. Where we see those things take place, we see the evidence of reformation. Now, brethren, we have large desires, of course, for reformation to sweep across the nation and indeed the church of Christ throughout this world. But what's true of the grand scale is to be true of the smallest scale. What does reformation look like in your life and in my life? Well, it looks like much the same. It, the difference will be it's not including other people. But for instance, God's Word searches out a sin in our lives. Here are some marks we can take into consideration. When that happens, what follows? Is it so that, for instance, God searches out by His Word a defect, a sin in my life? Does it bring conviction in my life? We might say, yeah, it does. But we can go further and say, does it bring about confession of sin in my life? And Lord willing, we can say, yes, it does. But we can go further and ask, does it bring about repentance in my life? And brethren, let's be straight. If we can't say that it does, we should drop the moniker Reformed. We should no longer call ourselves Reformed. Because Reformed loses its meaning if we as individuals won't be Reformed according to His Word. We might hold to the doctrines of grace. We might hold to purity of worship. We might hold to Presbyterian church government. And we might, as it were, have all of the right doctrines and everything else in our lives established. But if we won't be brought under God's Word, well, we've lost the right to consider ourselves truly, biblically reformed. Because what is reformed? Well, it's reformed according to God's Word, not just the doctrines of grace, not just these principles of worship or those principles of church governance or discipline or whatever else, but even the matter of my life, how I live before God. But do you also notice, we emphasized this last time, at the time of the evening sacrifice, what is it that the people did? Well, they gave their hand, verse 19, that they would put away their wives, and being guilty, they offered a ram of the flock for their trespass. Do you know what Reformation always does when it's biblical? It always keeps its focus upon the work of the substitute. It doesn't rest on my repentance as my righteousness before God. They don't say, listen, we'll put our wives away and we'll be fine. They were guilty. They would put their wives away, but they also offered a ram of the flock for their trespass. Here's the point. Reformation requires and demands a fixation upon the substitute who cleanses us from our sin. And so we can ask that question. Am I looking to the substitute here foreshadowed by the ram of the flock that was uh, for their trespass, am I looking to Him and appealing to Him? I being found guilty, though I must repent, though I must turn my way to God's way, 
Yet am I realizing that my repentance is not the same as my remission. My repentance is not the same as my acceptance. I need the sacrifice that Christ has provided me. This is why in true and biblical Reformed circles, wherever Reformation, whether Reformed or Lutheran or other ways, whatever degree of faithfulness has been found and expressed, if it is true, there's a focus upon the sacrifice of Christ. Well, brethren, as we close, Lord willing, one thing that each of us sees is how necessary it is that God be gracious to supply what is needed. Ezra seemingly came to a moment where he had almost despaired of life until Shechaniah had come to encourage him. You'll notice he says in verse 4, Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee. Be of and do it. How often is it the case that one individual falters and fails because frankly, no one is sufficient for these things. And yet, oh, the encouragement of a Barnabas, a son of consolation, to come alongside and say, go up and be busy about these things, for we are with you in it. Well, who provided Shechaniah? The same who provided Ezra. It's God. God is the one who provides these means and who enlivens these means. And brethren, if we have desire in our own lives, in our marriages and families, in our congregation, Presbyterian beyond, to see any degree of reformation, we must have God at work. We must indeed have those whom He supplies, but what is Ezra if he has not this encouragement? He's a convinced man. He's a man who's humbled and abased. But it seems without Shechaniah, he's there wallowing. God supplies Shechaniah and he's strengthened and he's able to carry out his work. Remember, of course, that as Moses stands up, Aaron and Hur had to prop his hands. And so it is today. We need those who would support, and yet all are those whom God supplies. And all that would go forward as Reformation goes forward as God grants it, even as Ezra has said on several occasions. But you'll notice that instrumentally, we see as well the importance of faithful men to do that difficult and laborious work of searching the Scriptures first and foremost, as Ezra had, and then exercising that authority in accordance to God's Word to the circumstances before them in spite of the toll that takes on their own uh, mind and soul, despite the time that it takes, because as they are spending themselves and being spent, they're doing so both for the good of God's people. But remember, the people reformed are brought back to that holy instance of a people in covenant with God who then show forth the praises of God. The work of these men is not merely for the moment, as it were, it's for the last praise of God, which work is highly prized. And so pray that God would raise up men who would search the Scriptures as Ezra did, who would apply his heart to know and understand and to do, and then to teach in Israel's statutes, that as God would so provide His people, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, by the gift of Christ, would be nurtured and edified and built up a holy people unto God. Would you stand with me for prayer?